Now, some people like ads, some people don't, and that's okay. But we like to keep everyone happy. So if you're one of the people who doesn't like to listen to ads, choose the Dave McWilliams Plus option on Apple Podcasts. And you can listen to this podcast just the way you like it. If you're a Shark Tank fan or business junkie, check out the podcast Another Bite. Each week, Another Bite breaks down the biggest success stories and most disastrous failures to come out of Shark Tank. The hosts break down each company's pitch, analyze the deals that were or weren't made, and answer the million-dollar question, are they still a company? Whether you're an entrepreneur looking for tips or a Shark Tank fan that just wants to relive the drama, Another Bite's your deep dive into the world of Shark Tank. Just search for Another Bite in your favorite podcast app, like the one you're listening to right now. Introducing Wondersuite from Bluehost.com. Website creation is hard, but now with Bluehost, you can answer a few simple questions about your business and get a unique WordPress website or store right away. From there, you can customize your design, colors, and content. And Bluehost automatically helps you get found in search engines like Google and Bing. From step-by-step guidance to suggested plugins, Bluehost makes WordPress wonderful for everyone. Go to bluehost.com slash wondersuite. To understand the economy, you have to understand human nature. This podcast is powered by Acast. How are you doing there? It is time for the podcast. I am talking here to a sun-kissed, bronzed Adonis, uh, (laughs) who looks like a a middle-aged member of the Chippingdales, slightly gone to seed. How are you, boss? How was your holier? (laughs) I was awash with wine. (laughs) It was fab. I tell you, you'd love it down there. I was in a little, this little mountaintop village called Monsaker in the Pyrenees. Absolutely beautiful. Just surrounded by forests. Tiny little village. Uh, population of probably less than 150. But I'm just talking to some of the locals. And I know this is something that we're going to talk about in a little bit about the kind of slower pace of life and degrowth and all that kind of stuff. But Montsegur, like a lot of villages in rural areas across Europe, can struggle to survive. Like, you know, the young people of the village leave for college and jobs and, quite frankly, a bit of excitement leaving an older population that kind of mainly survives on tourism and that kind of stuff. But it's also attracted a few people to live there, you know, setting up guest houses and all that kind of stuff to cater for the tours. But then COVID came along and absolutely killed that trade. And there's a few guest houses and there's one small hotel in the village that shut down that never reopened. So it's quite, it's quite, it's quite a dead little place, is it? Well, yes, but, but my point is it's, it's this kind of slower pace of life that people seek, you know, this sustainable living, that's really precarious because it's a really fine line for survival. But it's an absolutely beautiful place. Like, amazing history, the Cathars and all that kind of stuff. We're going to talk about the Cathars. We're going to talk about religion, actually, John, at the top, because you just mentioned Ooh. the Pyrenees. And I'm going to tell you, the very first time I was in the Pyrenees, first and last time, John, I was yeah. in the Pyrenees, my mother and grandmother took me in the late 1970s on a pilgrimage to Lourdes. I swear <laughs> yeah. to Jesus. And the subtext was that poor old dad had a touch of the prod in him, right, from his mum's side. And my granny yeah. on my mum's side was having none of it. So I was going to be brought up properly Catholic. And it was the St. Patrick's <laughs> Church in Monkstown pilgrimage, right? So yeah. I go on the first time I've ever been on a plane. The excitement of that. I was about 10 years old, right? Teens with dread, I'd say. I'm getting on the plane. 
It's a pilgrim plane, so it's all Holy Joes. But yeah, I'm, thinking, I'm yeah. loving this. I'm loving, loving, loving this. And plane takes off. It's very, very weird, except for as the plane starts to take off, you know. And normally where you would have the uh, air hostess steward saying, you know, in the unlikely event of a drop in cabin pressure, instead of that, mm. a nun took hold of the microphone <laughs> and started, hey, Mary, full of grace, Lord, with the D4, there was decades of the rosary all the way over to Lord. I swear the to Jesus. The clanking of rosary beads. The clanking of rosary beads. So much so that the next time I was on a plane, was yeah. in a Dokey United football trip to Germany about four years later. And I'm sitting beside my dad, who was the manager of yeah. the football team. And I look at dad and, and the plane's taken off. And I say to dad, where are the nuns? <laughs> I probably my rosary beads in hand. He says, he says, what nuns? I says, the nuns who always sing on the planes. Right? I thought that all planes had customized nuns on them who just yeah. grabbed the microphone as it went up and actually did decades of the rosary. These are the bizarre well, things. And I arrived in the Pyrenees none the wiser. I was chatting to an English guy over there and he had a house near Lourdes. And he goes over there three months or six months a year or whatever. And I was saying, so, so I didn't know there was an airport there. And I said, so where do you fly into? And he said, well, we fly into Lourdes. The problem is it's full of Catholics. And if you can bear all the singing and happy clapping, you're grand. But by Jesus, it's torture. <laughs> well, I just thought it was the most exotic thing I ever saw. I didn't know how to take that. <laughs> you should have hit him a dig. I thought it was the most exotic thing I was ever at. I did the bats. I did yeah. the whole thing. I loved it. I thought it was absolutely outrageous. I thought it was the funniest. Didn't do you any good though, Mac, though, did it? My, of course, no. But my abiding memory is nuns and planes. And it took me years to, it was almost like that. It was like a Father Ted thing, right? Yeah. But I really, it was like Father Dougal, a young Father Dougal. I just yeah. thought nuns came with planes. That's what they did. <laughs> and that's what kept the planes up in the air. It was all the praying. Nothing to, nothing to do with you know thermodynamics the or engineers. Yeah. Exactly, angel things. Anyway, John, so you were in the Pyrenees drinking wine, being a member of the slow food movement. Yes, indeed. It was fantastic. Loads of walking, loads of hiking. Do you know what actually struck me as well? We might be going off the, the topic here. Is you know the way we've of course we're before. going off the topic. <laughs> yeah, there's nothing new there. But you know the way I've mentioned before various wildlife and biodiversity in Ireland on a few recent podcasts. Well, it really struck me that how rich and vibrant the biodiversity in France is. Like, there's a lot of talk here in Ireland about a biodiversity crisis and the the loss of species and all the rest. Like in the way rural Ireland is a much quieter place than it was. You know, even twenty thirty. 40 years ago due to loss of habitat and loss of species. But in France, the French farmers seemed to be much more in tune with nature. Like there was lots of fallow fields that are just bursting with wildflowers and birds and these amazing butterfly species that I've never seen before. But the whole thing is alive and it's loud and it's, you know, oh man, I was just in heaven. When we were kids, uh, I used to get shoot every week, the football magazine. And John used to send away from England for a magazine called Animal Tracts and Science. I jest you not. Okay. <laughs> he has been into wildlife and nature since he was, did you remember that when you were a young fellow, when you were about 12? And I'd come out and I'd say, I'd say, you know, Kenny Dagley scored an amazing goal for Liverpool last night. And John's like, did you know the biodiversity in Monkstown is collapsing? <laughs> 
Anyway, anyway, let go, us, on, go on. Let us talk about what you were talking about, which was the slow food movement, the degrowth movement, the fact that in the Pyrenees, life seems to be going very, very slow. And we'll, we'll parlay that into a discussion about the slow growth movement, full stop. But So what you felt was this four-day week in France, was it? Well, yeah, what, what I always find interesting and, and kind of annoying at times is that, you know, when you arrive into a lot of, especially Southern European cities on a Sunday or a Monday, they're often closed. Everything is closed. You can't get anything. And in Europe, it just seems that there's a different kind of weekly routine that people just get on with, you know? There is. But whereas here, as you know, our weekly rhythm back in the 80s and 70s used to be fish on a Friday and mass on a Sunday and everything was closed. But then it changed somehow where our focus was completely on commercialism. Everything open. Open 24-7. Yeah. No, it's And you true. can't get exactly. away from it. But Europe has retained this kind of six-day week or five-day week where shops just close. You just, our, they just don't yeah, open. No, our four-and-a-half-day week. I mean, I remember, John, it's a very interesting point you make. And it's about human behavior and behavioral economics. Mm. So if you think that humans are a an animal that doesn't think and doesn't adapt to its environment, right? What you might think is that going four days a week, opening four days a week, you're going to sell less. Yeah. Yeah. But actual fact, you sell exactly the same. It's just people change their behavior. I remember years ago, and people listening to the show, if you've ever lived in Germany, particularly in the old days in Germany, I mean, in the 1990s, right? Mm. And even up until the 2000s, and you tried to get a loaf of bread after 12 midday on a Saturday, anywhere in Germany, a pint of milk, a loaf of bread, any shop, every single German shop closed all over Germany. Yeah. 12 o'clock, 12 o'clock on a Saturday. Imagine this all the way through to Monday morning. There was wow. no trade. And the reason was, the Germans said, German workers need time off. German workers are not slaves. They're not, they're not cogs in the machine. They're yep. normal human beings. So what happened is, the Germans all were very methodical about their shopping. Mm. So unlike Paddy here, who was like, I can't believe it, you know, the thing isn't open. They were like, yeah, but we, we get the food before. The thing yeah, goes. you plan for it. It's the same thing about in France and in Italy, you know, if you go into an Italian town in the middle of the day, nothing's open. Yeah. Nothing's open. Or a Spanish town as well. In Montsegur, where we were, there was a little boulangerie, a little bakery. Of course there was. There. And your man that we were renting the house from said, yeah, the boulangerie is just down there and around the corner, blah, blah, blah. But uh, you have to be there between half eight and quarter past nine in the morning. <laughs> Only it. 45 yeah. minutes a day. And then he runs out of stock and he's gone. <laughs> and the rest of the stock he brings down to around the other villages. He goes on his little rounds. But it was 45 minutes. You either get it or you don't. John, there is a shop on Patrick Street in Dunleary which sells swanky croissants and breads based on, I think it's an Austrian model, right? And they right. basically have a little sticker up on a Saturday and they say, we're going to be open until we run out. That's it. So we're going to make X amount of bread and when, when we run out, we're going to think, and it is fair enough. But I want to talk to you about the degrowth movement, John, yeah, because yeah. in May and in June, there have been a couple of symposiums supported by the European Union about this degrowth movement, which is now becoming incredibly, and it is an attractive idea because it kind of speaks to this idea of slowing down and relaxing and GDP being not necessarily anything other than a measurement of sort of, many people would say, a form of sort of slavery on the clock sort of idea. Yeah. And this all came to me, John, you were down in France and I was on my, remember my trip 
from Brussels to Berlin. Yes. When I found yeah. myself on the slowest train ever, the Eurosleeper. <laughs> and the yeah. Eurosleeper had omitted to tell their punters. And of course, I did it for all the right reasons, because you don't want to fly, you want to be environmentally conscious, all that sort of malarkey. Yeah. And they omitted to tell their punters that not only was there no bar, there was no restaurant, there was no food, there was no even food trolley, there was no was- Wi-Fi. There was no air conditioning. There was no electricity points. There was no power points. Was there even there a jacks? There was, there was a jacks, right? There was a jacks. Oh, okay? God for that. And the windows could open. And I thought, you know, initially, as I said, I had this little hissy fit and I felt like a total yeah. gobshite after about two minutes. And then I thought, okay, this is grand. This is yeah. what the degrowth movement is all about. You just make do and you, you basically open the window. There's no air con, so you're not ex- uh, expending electricity, right? You're not expending Wi-Fi, blah, 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 blah. And away you go into the European night. And of course, what I realized was that the rolling stock was from the former Soviet Republic or the former satellite states of Czechoslovakia. Yeah. But be this as it may, it wasn't a bad way to travel. And I thought this is a sort of emblematic of a movement which is saying that we can adjust our behavior. We can adjust the way we live to something different. As you said, a bit slower, a bit less consumptive a bit less grabbing of the world's precious resources. So so as you're pottering along on the, on the train, what were you doing? You're just was, looking out I the was, window or what? I was contemplating the slow mo- No, I was reading a book. I know you'll find this very bizarre. Right. I called Joseph Roth. A detective, was it? It wasn't a detective, John. It wasn't a detective. It's a, this is going to really, this is going to give you the hard on now, John. The book is called Weights and Measures. Right. And, okay. So the book is about, right. And the reason this is all important, he was from Galicia, a place called Galicia, Ruthenia. Ruthenia was a small little country between Ukraine and Poland, part of the Austrian Hungarian Empire, whose most famous son, John, is Andy Warhol. Oh, yes, of course, yeah. Andy Warhol was a Ruthenian, right? And Ruthenia was on the nether regions of the Austrian-Hungarian Empire. And as I was going through Europe, middle Europa, on my train with my Czechoslovakian rolling stock, I was reading Joseph Roth. And this book is about the inspector. I know you're going to find this hilarious. I found it (laughs) fascinating, right? It is about the inspector. I Actually, I'll read you the first line. I'll read you the first line of the book, okay? You read me the first line, come on. Once upon a time, in the district of Zlotogrot, there lived an inspector of weights and measures whose name was Anselm Ivanschutz. His duty consisted of checking the weights and measures of the tradesmen in the entire district. So at specific intervals, Ivanschutz went from shop to shop and he investigated the yardsticks, the scales, the weights, and he was accompanied by a sergeant of the gendarmerie, and it goes on and on and on. And this is thus the Riveting state stuff, made, Mac. Riveting. No, no, thus the state. Here's the, here's the important point. This is all about economics. Thus the state made manifest its intention to use arms, if necessary, to punish cheats in accordance with the commandments proclaimed in the Holy Scriptures, which considers a cheat to be the same as a thief. So right. what's the book all about? The book is all about <laughs> the impact on European peoples of decimalization in the 19th century. Yeah. Of the change to go from... People say, I think this is a yard. I think this is a foot. I think this is what this weighs, right? If you're a tradesman and everyone will trust each other, that John won't rip off David because they've been old mates, et cetera, right? Mm. But then after decimalization, right, this total change in the industrial economy, this is where I come back to. The industrial economy came with a whole new infrastructure. And part of that infrastructure was a geezer who 
went around checking whether everybody was compliant with weights and measures. It all came with a huge sort of what you would call the industrialization of rural life. Right. And he had, uh, he had a terrible time. It's a, it's a tragic book. It's a, it's a great story, though. <laughs> yeah. It's a real page turner. It's a classic. He, he, he goes off with the, uh, he, he, his missus don't get on very well. Then she has an affair with somebody. Uh, she has a kid by the guy that she had an affair with. Then your man decides to go off with the lady who runs the local B&B, which could be a blur song, but it's not, and runs the local tavern, who hangs out at the tavern man. She's a gypsy from down in Romania. He gets involved with loads of gypsies, la, 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 and the whole thing goes pear-shaped. But wow. the essential idea is yeah. the change to society wrought by industrialization. And Christopher Nolan, I'd about. say, is going to turn that into a movie any day now. Well, I, I tell you, you know, I tell you, the, pro- the problem with Killian Murphy is he'd have to put on weight to play your man. Because <laughs> Murphy always loses weight to play characters. Oh, a friend, if I have an impression of our friend Anselm Eisenschutz, he's not that skinny. I think he's a big, no. broad guy. But my point yeah. is, John, at every stage in society, when you have massive changes in the mass commercialization of a country or an empire, what you get is massive social change. And lots and lots of people don't like social change. And I think what we're seeing in the degrowth movement is a reaction to and a movement against GDPization. Yeah. The idea that everything has to be measured by GDP. So I've, my friend Eisenschutz is the Austrian-Hungarian equivalent of an economist coming in and saying to you all, the GDP has to measure this, that, and the other. And this is all about a reaction to it. And that's what I find interesting because I think that's what we're going to talk about today, which is people's reaction to the idea or the allegation, the allegation that many countries have been taken over by straight-laced economists who measure progress in GDP and GDP alone. Michael D was on about this a couple of months ago as well. Well, and... We need to think about the world in a different way. Well, you know that great quote that David Attenborough has made a few times that I absolutely love, and it's anyone who thinks that you can have infinite growth in a finite environment is either a madman or an economist. I know, I know. Well, I am going to defend my flock, my tribe. Go in for this, it, go right? on. One of the dilemmas with the degrowth movement is... It ennobles economic depression. It ennobles or it fetishizes economic decline. Because what it says is that we're going to start at zero growth and then everything comes from that. Now, I would say Irish people know what the no growth movement or degrowth movement means. How do you mean? We lived in our country from the 1920s to the 1990s with no growth. I know what it looks like. The 1980s, what we're talking about, the 1970s, 1980s, that was a period of no growth. I know what it looks like. It looks terrible. It looks like it's full of poverty. It's full of emigration. When you don't get growth, you tend to get status, right? And status is that the incumbents, the incumbent class become dominant. And the reason that is, is that economic growth is an indication of vibrancy. Just forget GDP for a minute. Economic growth, the idea of wealth creation, the idea of going out and commercially backing yourself in the market, the idea of making a few quid, the idea of actually pulling yourself up from a position to another position. What that is, is an indication of dynamism, of vibrancy, 
But more, more importantly, and this is what I come back to, it actually undermines the status quo because the status quo is always undermined by a vibrancy. What the status quo loves is no growth. Why? Because it can live there. Why do you think the Catholic Church was so strong in Ireland from the period of 1920 to 1990? Mm. Because there was no fucking growth, right? There was no yeah. economic growth. So there was no yeah, dynamism yeah. and there was no questioning. There was no, there's no idea that people said, look, I have enough money in my back pocket. I don't have to go down to Lourdes on my bloody pilgrimage, right? Unlike myself, right? I can actually stand up my own two feet. And what, what we see is, just so this is my point, is that the degrowth movement, which is now, I think, becoming a significant part of the European intellectual, in particular, groundswell, mm. is all about fetishizing economic decline. And as Irish people, we know what economic decline looks like. And the reason that the degrowth movement is so popular in places like Germany and France is because they're already rich. But can, can I ask you, though, is it about economic decline or is it about kind of working smarter? Because I know that there's a kind of, a, particularly since COVID, there's this kind of drive towards a four-day week. I mean, it's set aside the not opening on Sundays thing, but actually a four-day week, Monday to Thursday, for instance. Is that not a way of degrowth, but just in a way of working smarter? No, what you've highlighted is what Keynes said, right, many, many yeah. years ago. Yeah. That as we become much more productive, as we become much, much wealthier, as societies become wealthier, what people should do is swap work for leisure. They said, you know what? I don't yes. have to work yeah. five days a week. I work three days a week. And Keynes had this extraordinary image of a future where people would be hanging around, reading books, going to the pub, chilling out, etc. Sounds nice. Yeah, absolutely it sounds nice. But that's not what has materialized. But what the degrowth movement says is that we have to start that economic growth is the problem right? Economic yeah. growth is a problem because economic growth, by definition, by definition, wastes the resources of the planet. And therefore, carbon emissions, for example, and economic growth go together, right? But if you look at the data, there has been a profound decoupling of economic growth and carbon emissions, at least in European countries. That's the first thing. And we'll come back right. to that in a second. I just think the degrowth movement is a lot of woolly thinking there. There's a lot of pseudoscience there. I also believe that it's a lot of left-wing, old-school left-wing rhetoric about equality, anti-imperialism, colonialism, consumerism. It's almost like whatever you're having yourself, right? You yeah. throw it all into one, one big thing. There was an expression that I heard, which is called watermelons, which are green yeah. on the outside and red on the inside. Yeah, 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 yeah. So you're, you're green on the outside because in actual fact, what you really, really are is an old school Marxist, right? You're red on the inside. So you're a watermelon. Yeah. I don't, yeah. I'm not sure this is true. And lots of listeners will be getting very pissed off about this, right? Because it feels like the right thing to do, the degrowth movement. It feels right. It feels well, that, that well, that's it, the way to go. Especially but, during this summer, because we're actually seeing, you know, floods on one end of Europe and blistering heat on the other end, you know, and... and no, absolutely. Yeah. And, you know, climate change is all part of that. But what I'm saying is, the first thing is, if 
we have degrowth, right? Global degrowth in order to prevent excessive climate change, right? There's one thing is that it means that people who are now already very poor, so the very poorest in the world are going to be told, you will remain poor. Yeah. You cannot grow. And in fact, we are going to orchestrate a situation where your growth is going to be regarded as morally reprehensible and you can't grow. I don't think there's any parent in India or any parent in China or any parent in Africa who's looking at their kids saying, well, you know what? We're going to ennoble our poverty. And for the sake of the planet, we're going to say you can't grow, particularly when those white people in Europe are so rich and those white Mm. people in America are so rich. So that's the first thing. I can't understand how we can square that circle. Second thing I can't understand in the degrowth movement, and I'm very, very open to persuasion. The podcast has not got the monopoly on the truth. So we're very open to this, having discussions about this in the future. Second thing I can't understand is if you say, okay, well, we're not going to impoverish the very, very poor, but what we're going to do is we're going to give everybody the same around the world, right? Mm. So let's say, for example, there's a Serbian economist called Branko Milanovic, very, very brilliant. Yeah. And he studies a lot about inequality. He's actually coming to Kilconomics. He's a a brilliant, brilliant thinker. And he makes the point about degrowth. He says, well, hold on a second. Hold on a second. Let's say we do this and we pick a global average wage or income of about $17,500, which is in effect where China is at the moment, right? The average in China. We say the world has to be at this level of income, right? It's my daily rate. It's your day. Exactly, exactly, exactly. What that means, John, is that everybody above that, so all Europeans, all Canadians, all Americans, right? Yeah. And many other people, right? All Japanese, mo- many, many people in, in, in the emerging markets of Asia, all of us will have to reduce our living standards dramatically. Yeah. Now, what he's saying is that that may well sound good, but it's highly improbable that anybody's going to vote for that in any of these countries. Of course, right? yeah, yeah. That, that Europeans are going to vote for mass impoverishment, or as I called it with respect to the unionists in Northern, Northern Ireland, immiseration. Do you remember the expression immiseration? Yeah. Right? Yes, yeah, yeah, yeah. I've been using that so, ever since, actually. It's a great one, isn't it? It's a great <laughs> one. So if Europeans are not going to vote for immiseration, and if poor people in China and India are not going to accept that their children cannot expect at least a slightly higher standard of living. Mm. What do we do? What do we do? Like, is it practical? And it's only practical in a world where you have a centrally controlled one government, right? Even Marx didn't dream of this. Yeah. That is actually tinkering around at the moment. So the point is, it's highly impractical, highly impractical. And then you've got to say, okay, well, what is the problem? First of all, who are doing most of the pollution? Is it reasonable to ask poor countries to remain poor indefinitely? And if not, is it possible to have the central tenet of the degrowth movement is that you cannot decouple GDP from carbon emissions? Yes. So, John, let me show you the data, okay, from our world data, which is a 100% reliable information source It's on decoupling countries that have achieved economic growth while at the same time reduce CO2 emissions from 2005 to 2019. 
Cool. Okay. Well, hold that thought there for a second and let's just do that after the break. Say hello to a new era of mental health care. Cerebral is here to help you achieve your mental wellness goals with professional therapy and medication management support. 100% online. You'll experience the all new Cerebral way, an innovative approach to mental wellness designed around you. You'll get a personalized treatment plan from a therapist, prescriber, or both in a safe and judgment-free space. Your cerebral therapist or prescriber will outline a customized plan with clear milestones along the way, so you can get to feeling your best. With Cerebral, you're not alone in your mental health journey. We're here to empower you to live a fulfilling life. So take that first step towards a brighter future and sign up today at Cerebral.com slash podcast and use code ACAST to get 15% off your first month. Offer only valid on monthly plans. Other exclusions may apply. Offer ends July 31st, 2024. See site for details. Cool fact, a crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Also, you can get health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short-term insurance plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage for you. Learn more at UH1.com. Hey, Dave. Yeah, Randy. Since we founded Bombas, we've always said our socks, underwear, and T-shirts are super soft. Any new ideas? Maybe sublimely soft. Or disgustingly cozy. Wait, what? I got it. Bombas. Absurdly comfortable essentials for yourself. And for those facing homelessness. Because one purchased equals one donated. Wow, did we just write an ad? Yes. Bombas. Big comfort for everyone. Go to bombas.com slash ACAST and use code ACAST for 20% off your first purchase. Okay, Mark, you were going to tell us about this data that shows us how countries have achieved economic growth while reducing CO2 emissions. Give us a run through that. Okay, so this fascinates me, right? Which is whether or not it is possible to achieve higher levels of economic growth while at the same time decrease your CO2 emissions. The data is very revealing on this. Take a country like Ireland, right? So the period 2005 to 2019, Irish GDP rose by 81% over that period. Wow. Our carbon emissions fell by 42%. 42%. Take a country like Portugal. So Ireland's a bit of an outlier. Sorry, just to stop you there, it is worth pointing out, there was a recent report there that says that Ireland is going to miss its 2030 emissions targets by quite a bit, actually. I know it's kind of different to this bigger picture, but it still needs to be acknowledged. But that said, firehead. Okay, take a country like Portugal. GDP rose by 10% over that period. Carbon emissions fell by 38%. Spain grew by 16%. Carbon emissions fell by 35%. Jamaica grew by 6%. Its carbon emissions fell by 33% over that period. Denmark, the same. UK, the same. Romania, Croatia, Finland, Netherlands, these are all countries. Actually, sorry, the Romanian figure is actually quite interesting. Maybe that's something we should come back to. They've grown by 62% and reduced their carbon emissions by 26%. It's quite incredible. So what, what we're seeing is that in France, Germany, Estonia, Sweden, Cyprus, Singapore, Hungary, Japan, even the United States, which is per head the worst polluter in the world, has managed to increase its GDP while at the same time reduce its carbon emissions. So what does that mean then? Well, the point it means that a lot of the technology, so the green technology, so electric cars, 
changing the type of fuels we use, using much more fuel-efficient engines, all that sort of stuff is allowing us to have this sweet spot where we're talking about countries being able to grow while at the same time reduce their carbon emissions, right? right? And this is not relative decoupling, John. This is not saying, you know, relative decoupling where the environmental damage grows, but it grows more slowly than GDP. And it's not mm. even saying per capita decoupling. This is absolute decoupling where GDP grows and carbon emissions are shrinking. So I think this is something that people don't appreciate enough, which is that, yes, gradualism takes time. And yes, it doesn't sound half as attractive as a radical rethink of growth and the way in which we run the world. But but we are seeing in many, many countries a situation whereby economic growth is rising and carbon emissions are falling. And then we've got to figure out, okay, so where is this not happening? So where do we focus on countries that are polluting much more now than they did a couple of years ago, right? And of course, this goes back to the idea that basically developing countries, poor countries, do not emit carbon. So the first thing you've got to understand is that the wealthier countries are trying to get their act together. The very poorest countries, number one, are more climate vulnerable, but Mm. number two, do not contribute to carbon emissions because their consumption levels are very low. And at the moment, the degrowth movement is saying to them, well, you guys, you need to invest lots and lots and lots in renewables, which I can understand. And you know what? All that natural gas you have and that sort of stuff you have, you shouldn't actually take out of the ground. And this led the president of Uganda to observe, okay, Musevi. He said, the Western aid industrial complex, now that's a bit uh, loaded, but I understand what he's saying, composed of non-governmental organizations and state development agencies, has poured money into wind and solar projects across the continent, meaning Africa. This earns them praise in the United States and Europe, but leaves many Africans with unreliable and expensive electricity that depends on diesel generators or batteries on overcast or still days. So what he's talking about is the fact that, you know, Sub-Saharan Africa is paying for the moral rectitude of northern countries. It's a fascinating idea, which I don't think sometimes comes out. It also happens to be the case that climate policy is the lowest policy priority amongst poor. Only 14% of people in sub-Saharan Africa have access to clean fuels or technology. It's not just something that they're But they're just trying to survive. They're just trying to survive, right? Yeah. They're just trying to survive. So if we look at, okay, so who are the main polluters? It's middle-income countries such as China and India. And they're plowing their resources in, they're plowing through resources as they industrialize, right? China's CO2 emissions scaled by GDP are more than twice that of the US and five times that of the EU. Yeah. And in gross terms, China is now emitting more CO2 emissions than the US, UK, Japan, and the EU combined. And the world's poorest countries, poorest 29 nations that are home to 8% of the world's population are responsible for less than a half a percent of global emissions. China and Russia, on the other hand, contributed 50% of global carbon dioxide emissions in 2018, right? So what you have is a situation, John, 
where the poorest of the poor do not generate carbon emissions, yet they are being told that they should not mine their own fossil fuels. That's prompting an African leader like Museve to say, hold on a second. Absolutely, you guys yeah. are actually saying to us, we've done all the damage, you can't do it. Yeah. The richer countries in Europe are achieving this decoupling slow, but it's not actually in it's not impossible to see this going on. And then, of course, what you have is the real polluters are the middle-income countries that are driving industry. Now, most degrowth people will say, okay, David, that sounds grand, but all you're doing is because you guys are buying all the manufacturing goods of the Chinese, right? Mm. You are contributing to them yes. yeah, spending yeah, yeah, exactly. all the energy. So if yeah. you stop spending, and I think that's a very fair point, right? But then the question is, and it's in my head about how do you affect this change in a world of competing democracies, in a world of competing geographies, in a world of competing strategies, right? Yeah. It's, it well, strikes well me how? That, like, how, how do you I don't achieve know. that? I don't know. I mean, are we in the West, are we in danger of being hypocrites? I mean, are we the ones who are moralizing and wagging our fingers at the developing world and, and dictating what, what they can and can't do with their own resources because it might affect us? Well, and so how do we change that? I, how do we level the playing field, as it were? No, I think, I think that everybody's coming to this with their heart in the right place, right? I sure. think that people in wealthy countries who are in the degrowth movement really feel, and I, I use the word feel because there's a lot of feeling in here, that many problems, consumerism, climate change, inequality, dare I even say, because they use it, you know, imperialism, colonialism, all these isms that are taken as negatives are all sourced fundamentally in this obsession with economic growth. Yeah. And economic growth, therefore, becomes a totemic objective of countries, businesses, people, and they don't see or we don't see all the various different connections. So I get that, right? But what I'm worried about, John, is having come from a country that had degrowth for 70 years, what mm. degrowth actually means. What it means is you fetishize poverty in your own country, okay? And you ennoble the idea of economic decline. Whether we like it or not, economic growth has enabled a huge amount of very positive things in our country and all across the world. And then, of course, you have this, as you said, the extra geostrategic bit in it, which is that the poor countries who are most vulnerable to climate change contribute the least to global emissions, but are now being asked by the degrowth movement to stop growing, right? And the final piece of the jigsaw, John, is that the West, the rich West, would have to reduce dramatically our income levels in order to make this happen. And I think yeah. what's happening here, and it's always a very worrying thing in academia and intellectualism, is if you start with a conclusion, so if you decide that, you know, we're not going to find the truth here, but we've already found the truth, and the truth is zero growth, Right. If you start with that position, then you build your entire edifice around a conclusion, which is very anti-scientific, because the whole point of yeah. science is you actually, you, 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 you arrive at your conclusion. So I think what we have, John, is, and the reason it's worrying, 
is that it's a very, very big movement, is that we have a movement which our heart says is the right thing to do. But when you apply your head to the logic, you realize it is full of flaws. And then sometimes when you point those flaws out or when those flaws are pointed out, people come back on the other side and they say, well, you know what? That's because we're going to move the goalposts now. I'm going to change the definition. And it always reminds me of years ago when people were infatuated by Marxism or communism. And there were many people infatuated by Marxism and communism for all the right reasons, because it's a yeah. nice thing. Equality is a nice thing. But when you'd say, well, okay, well, Russia, the Soviet Union, what happened there? I say, oh, that's not Marxist enough. And you say, oh, okay, fine. Cuba, that's a Marxist country. Well, what happened there? Oh, that's not proper Marxism. That's, that's some sort of thing. And the concept becomes so slippery that it becomes kind of inconsequential. But if it develops legs, it becomes an activity or an activist activity in itself. And then it becomes an ideology. And suddenly we're into a new world of a new ideology. But that ideology hasn't really been ever interrogated in any possible way. Now, I'm open to be lambasted, John. I'm open to be nothing change there, it around. Man. No, nothing new there. But I think this is one we should watch. This is Absolutely. one we should watch. And uh, i just leave you with the image of a 10-year-old boy in a plane with lots of nuns thinking there has to be a better way forward. Economic <laughs> growth has to be better than this carry-on. And we got it. Good luck. Ready? Okay. Give me a beach. Beach. Give me great food. Tacos. Give me adventure. Hiking. Give me a date night. Sunset cruise. Give me some smiles. Cheese. Give me more beaches. Beaches. What's that spell? San Diego. If you're happy and you know it, San Diego is the place to show it. Book your trip at san diego.org. Funded in part with the City of San Diego Tourism Marketing District Assessment Funds. Hi, my name is Danny Pellegrino from Everything Iconic, and I'm excited to talk to you about Club Med. Club Med operates beach and mountain resorts and is the best all-inclusive getaway for families. They have Club Med Punta Cana, their flagship family resort, and many other options in Mexico, the Caribbean, and around the world. Club Med are the pioneers of the all-inclusive concept, which is the best way to vacation. Great for families, groups, or even solo travelers looking for land and water sports, delicious food food, and a place to make unforgettable memories. Visit clubmed.us, call 1-800-CLUB-MED, or your travel advisor.